Good morning and welcome everybody. And I always forget to say good morning. Oh, that's so ironic. I was gonna say to those who are joining us online, but I don't see, <laughs> I don't see the camera, so. Oh, it's up there. So hi everybody. We think about and pray about you guys ahead of time. I just always forget to say hi on Sunday morning once we get going, so. Um, good to be with all of you. And if you would turn to Matthew chapter 18 and we, you can pick up in verse 14. New strategic position for our uh, video camera, all right? Uh, while you're finding your place, some comments I wanna make up front here just to kind of set the stage for this morning. Uh, this is a familiar parable for you if you've grown up in the church, maybe even if you've not. The parable of the lost sheep is kind of a, you know, even a part of the common vernacular to some degree of our, our culture. It's probably also familiar because we come across it more than just once in the New Testament and in the Gospels, and not even just because a different Gospel captures the same exact instance of Jesus sharing the story. Uh, there's a similar teaching in Luke chapter 15, but there it's a different emphasis, different context. There, there are Pharisees, uh, religious leaders, um, who are not a big fan of Jesus, who see him hanging out with uh, people they don't think he should be hanging out with, or excuse me, tax collectors and sinners. We would say unbelievers, those not yet officially a part of the community of faith. And this bothers them. And Jesus uses this parable, the parable of the lost sheep, to confront their hardness of heart. He's saying to them essentially through this parable, yes, they are sinners. Yes, they are lost. But for those who realize their lostness and turn and come to me, they will be saved. And this is something to rejoice in. That's something to scoff over. Now, here in our context of Matthew chapter 18, the, the context and the audience are a bit different. Here, Jesus is speaking about how the community of faith, presumably believers, should be interacting with one another. And he talks here about how there is a sheep that has gone astray. The language of Luke 15 is a sheep that is lost. Okay, so there's even a different nuance in the language Jesus is using. So presumably he has believers in mind and how the Father's heart is to go after this wayward believer who has strayed. However, now, as Jesus addresses his disciples here, the fellow believers have taken the place potentially of the Pharisees. And it will be, he says, the inclination of, of some within the community of faith to actually despise the wayward one who goes astray. And so Jesus confronts a heart attitude in believers that needs to be reoriented with this parable this morning. One more step back, just by way of kind of review as to where we are, Jesus's mission in general was to spread the good news of the kingdom, the new values, the new way of living that was to be shared by his, his community of believers, kingdom citizens. Um, and Yet in this chapter, so much of this chapter, Jesus spends time calling out the ways in which we get this wrong, calling out sin and behavior that's contrary to kingdom living. Um, things like pride and favoritism and causing others to stumble and hurting each other and needing to forgive because we've hurt one another. And the implication is this. Jesus knows we're gonna get kingdom living wrong. He knows we're gonna get it wrong sometimes. And that actually can be, at face value, something that I think is comforting and reassuring, <clears throat> um, lest we constantly think ourselves failures. 
Jesus gives us this teaching and his disciples this teaching because he knows we're going to get it wrong sometimes. He knows we are not going to stop needing grace. Do you agree with that? Is there an amen that would go along with that this morning? That even we, the saved people who've in one sense been made holy and new creations in Christ, we are not going to stop needing God's grace on this side of eternity. Jesus knows that. And so he gives this whole instruction throughout chapter 18 that identifies we're going to get this wrong sometimes. But as much as in one sense that's comforting and can be reassuring, in another sense, Jesus didn't want also a false sense of security to set in, that it's okay to just act like and be like the world and their relational dynamics or the ones that we were contributing to prior to coming to Christ. And so he gives us some sobering realities to have to consider here as well. There are some serious consequences that he names very vividly if we are to live persistently in contrast to this kingdom, the kingdom values that he's laying out. He, he talks about how we can cause others to sin by our own sin and by our own pride and fall away from Jesus. He even talks about the possibility of hell for those who persist in their sin and don't take their sin seriously, as we talked about last week. But there's also incredible hope throughout this chapter. Jesus gives illustration after illustration of how different God's ways are than ours, than that of a broken world. And this, this is the way that we rise above our pride, our judgments, our reluctance to forgive, is by when we see God rightly for who he is, how differently he is than this world, we cannot help but be humbled by that. So that's what I hope and pray we would see more of this morning as Jesus reveals something else about the Father's heart that he calls us in turn to live out in Matthew 18, starting in verse 10. So read with me, and it'll be on the screen behind me as well. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus starts off in verse 10 of this chapter picking up with a phrase or a a term that he used last week. He says, see to it that you not despise one of these little ones. And last week he introduced the subject of how we enter the kingdom through humbling ourselves by using the illustration of a child, one whose status in the eyes of the world was very low, considered insignificant, not big contributors in any significant way to society, considered unimportant. And Jesus was saying by this, as we talked about, that God values deeply what the world tends to treat cheaply. Now, little ones here doesn't mean less than children at this point, but picture Jesus as he says this, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, now pointing in turn to the disciples in his midst. The ones he's called to act like children if they're going to truly enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives the reason as to why, why we're not to despise one of these little ones. He he says, for... I tell you, and wherever you see that language of for, it usually means because, so the reason is about to be given. Here's why you should not despise one of these little ones, one of your brothers and sisters in Christ, one of your fellow disciples. 
For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So this is one of the more mysterious sayings we come across from Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Some would conclude from this verse primarily that each of us has been assigned by God a unique guardian angel that follows us throughout the duration of our lives. It's possible. Um, At the very least, what we can conclude from a verse like this is that angels have been assigned by God to minister to his people in various ways to care for and to protect them. The author of Hebrews reinforces this idea when he says, speaking of angels in chapter 1, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Okay, so they do have that purpose. That's very much biblical. Exactly how that fleshes itself, I don't know. And I don't normally live with that thought consciously on a daily basis, but I I think it's pretty cool that God has assigned these powerful angelic beings to be ministers of the saints, of you and I as followers in Christ, followers of Christ here this morning. Um, So there's a couple of possibilities then as to why this becomes the basis for why we're not to despise one another. I think partly what Jesus might be saying here is if your eyes could be opened, your spiritual eyes could be opened to this reality that he's just told you about, then you would see this entourage of these beautiful and powerful angelic beings at the side of the one who you're otherwise tempted to despise. Uh, Example kind of comes to mind, came to mind for me when I was thinking about this from uh, uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, a scene that some of you guys might be familiar with. This is uh, a scene in Israel's history where the king of Syria had come to make war against Israel. And uh, he had surrounded one of the cities, and Elisha, not Elijah, confusing, I know, but Elisha, his predecessor, was uh, a great prophet at the time. And he had a servant, and his servant woke up that morning from his tent or house or whatever, walked outside and saw the masses of the king of Syria's army surrounding their city, and he was afraid. And Elisha came out, he picked up on this, and here's what he said in response to his servant, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of this young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Right? It's this scene where the servant's eyes are open to the reality of the heavenly realms, one that exists at all times, even if you and I don't see it. Jesus is trying to use this as a basis here to talk about how we should reverence and respect those whom God values deeply. Basically, his point, I think, is if you were aware of and saw this reality surrounding those whom you're tempted maybe to dislike or to look down on or to despise, you would think twice before despising this one if you could see these powerful angelic creatures whom God has assigned to come to their aid and to serve them. Additionally, I think it's worth noting that Jesus said that these angelic beings always see the face of my Father in heaven. I don't know that that's true for every spiritual being God has created in the heavenly realms. There almost seems to be a unique um, privilege that these particular angels have in being able to behold the face of their Father in heaven. These ones whom God has assigned to his little ones. 
And so this perhaps indicates something about the rank in importance of these angelic beings that God has assigned to this person. They're not just any angels, but they're those of the highest rank, those who always see the face of my Father in heaven. In simplest terms, I think that Jesus is saying that those you're tempted to despise are of high importance to God. And this is just one more example of how we can know that to be true. This really hits home, especially when you consider the significance and greatness of God himself. Um, This isn't just anyone who's assigning value to us. This is our great and glorious creator God in heaven. This isn't me saying to you, you're valuable. That that might mean something to you. I, I hope that it would mean something to you. But what a game changer it is when it's the creator and maker of this universe who says, you are this valuable to me. So I spent some time this week thinking of those occasions in my life where I've just been struck deeply with this reality, especially as I've observed it in God's creation, just how mighty and great and powerful he is. I thought of uh, my experience the first time I went to the Saratoga Raceway. Anybody ever been there before? And uh, I I went right up to to the fence and just witnessed these beautiful creatures whom God has made who probably weigh, I don't know, four to five times at least the amount of a full-grown man, the fastest of their kind on earth, 12 of them perhaps, running in a race past me within 50 feet and just feeling the vibrations of their stampede radiate through the ground underneath me. It was just an awe-inspiring moment where, I mean, I just knew if I was in their way, it would be game over, right? They're just powerful creatures. God made those. I thought of my trips to California, the West Coast, and in particular to the coastline and just experiencing the power of the waves crashing against the bluffs. I don't know if you've been to the West Coast, but they tend to be a lot more rugged, a lot more cliffs. And there have been times that I've been standing on top of these cliffs where the the waves hit, and you can not only feel the vibrations, but they're crashing with such intensity that you get some of the spray of that water shooting up 50 feet to you above. It's just a humbling awe-inspiring experience. I've been to Niagara Falls, many of you probably have, and experienced it all, right? Made of the mist, going underneath the falls. But the, the one thing I think that most caused me to just be in awe of the power of creation and in the turn God was the boardwalk, is that what they call it? Where on the American side, you can kind of walk along these stairs and boardwalks and you can get up pretty close to the falls within maybe like 50 feet at some places. You can kind of back yourself up. You've got, of course, the the rain jacket they give you draped on you, and you can get right into that water. And that isn't even water directly coming off of the cliffs from 100 feet above. That's water that's bouncing off the rocks, and it's just pounding your back. It's just awe-inspiring. Think of my trip out west this past summer. My wife and I and our kids had this awesome opportunity to be able to travel out to California, and uh, we did so by vehicle. So when we got through Utah, it was the first time I'd ever seen canyons in person. And I'd heard stories about the Grand Canyon, its vastness. It's so hard to even comprehend when you're physically there. But you can't appreciate until you see one. And I remember when we were driving along Route 70, we'd seen some smaller canyons, but we got up to this place, if you've ever driven this route, called Ghost Rock. And it was the first time where I saw what I imagined the Grand Canyon to be something like, where it was just layer after layer after layer after layer after layer of canyon with then mountains in the very, very much in the distance. And it's just almost impossible to fathom like how vast this thing is. It's awe-inspiring. 
I don't know if you've ever been confronted with the vastness of our universe. Did you know it'd take 25,000 light years just to travel to the edge of our galaxy and 95 billion light years to travel from one end of the known universe to the other? And then, mind you, a light year is 186,000 miles per, not hour, second. That's seven and a half times around the world in one second, and it would take 95 billion light years to get from one end of the known universe to the other. God made all that. And this is the one who's saying we are significant and have value. I don't know if you've experienced this, but in some of those moments, my impulse was just to say, I am so sorry, God. I don't even know why. I just knew that I was being confronted with what I was treating as so important that was in fact so petty. And some of the things that I just treated so lightly that were sin in my life. And I was just like, I'm so sorry, God. You are so great. This God counts you and I is more valuable than you can imagine. Reminds me of King David in Psalm 8, where he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. He's not being self-deprecating. He's not, he's not despising himself. He's just marveling at the fact that the God of the universe would say you are as valuable and important as you are. And that's amazing. But what's also amazing in perhaps a more convicting sense, is that the most significant being in all of the universe counts more significant than you can ever imagine the people that you might be tempted to look down on. That's convicting. But there's more. Because it's not just the insignificant believer that's in view here. Now Jesus has the imperfect believer in view as well. The sinner, the wayward Christian who wanders off from trusting and following after Jesus. This isn't just the one now, like last week, who flies under the radar of the world's idea of what's impressive because they've humbled themselves and they don't count status as something to chase after. It's not just that person in view anymore, but Jesus is showing us a picture here of one who's screwed up, who's messed up, who's probably made some bad decisions, who's probably hurt some others, who's probably living selfishly. And this is the one that Jesus says, do not despise one of these little ones. This is the one that Jesus says God cares about so much that he would leave the 99 to go after the one. This is one of the things that Jesus knows we're going to get wrong as a community of faith. Even as sinners who are saved by grace, He knows we're going to be tempted to despise others because of their sin. He knows that we're going to be tempted to write people off as a lost cause because of their sin. When God, in fact, is not. Which of us has not thought to ourselves something like, man, this person should know better than this. This is on them. That's enough. They've made their decision. Which of us have not thought, well, because of the way they're acting, Man, this is the line. They're just not worth my time and energy. See, we can so quickly draw a line on how much of our love and our patience and our pursuit another is worthy of. And hear me, Jesus actually will draw lines next week for what the pursuit of others looks like. In the next teaching that's coming when he talks about When we've hurt one another, what does it look like to work towards restoration? But the lines that Jesus will draw for us doesn't determine where love ends, 
The lines Jesus draws for us just determines how love changes shape in the process of working towards restoration where there's conflict amongst believers. And this is also humbling because the picture that Jesus is giving us here is that of a holy God who pursues the unholy even when we, the unholy, often do not. The one Jesus who lived a perfectly selfless life, perfectly for the glory of his heavenly Father, the one Jesus who was tempted in every way that you and I are, yet without sin, this is the one who goes in search of the wayward sheep who has wandered away from him. This is the one whose will it is that not one of these little ones should perish, even when the wayward ones should have known better or are acting very unchristian. Jesus goes after him. And the point is this. If this is true for a holy God, how much more should it be true for you and I? I think that's really the big idea that Jesus wants us to take home from this passage. In verse 13, Jesus describes the joy of the Father when that wandering one is finally found, when like the prodigal son, if you're familiar with that story, they realize that they were wrong, they realize they missed God, they realize how much better off they were when they were with their God, and they're broken in their spirit and they return to him humbly. And he doesn't greet them with a condescending scowl on his face and his arms crossed. That's not the picture that Jesus gives us here, but instead of one in which there's celebration in heaven, especially on God's part. There's joy. In fact, more over the 99, or more over the one rather, than even the 99 who never went astray. Now that may rub some of us the wrong way. Why, Why would God rejoice more over the one who wandered off, even though they came back, than he would over the 99 who had apparently remained faithful. But that concern, if it's more than merely academic, may reveal where our hearts are at on this journey of humility. See, the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son experienced a similar concern. He heard music and celebration upon the return of his younger brother. He didn't know yet what it was about, but he found out that his younger brother, the one who had squandered his inheritance and run off and rejected the family, had come back and now was being thrown a party, and he refused to join in the celebration. And when the father hears of it, he comes to him. I I picture his arm being around him. And he says to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he is found. If we can't rejoice when a brother or sister who has fallen away repents, then we've not yet humbled ourselves like the little children that Jesus called to be last week. We still see ourselves as more significant than they are. It may also reveal where we've lost sight of our need for God's grace in our own lives. Jesus will tell the parable two chapters from now in Matthew 20 of a master and his laborers whom he's hired to work in his vineyard. And what he does is he hires some of these laborers for one denarius at the beginning of the day, and they agree to it, and they're fine with it. And then at the end of the day, he hires some more laborers, but he hires them for the same amount, one denarius, at the very end of the day. And the first laborers he hired cry foul. They just don't like this. It seems so wrong and unjust to them. 
And so the master's response in this parable is this. He says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. See, it's only when our eyes are truly off of ourselves, only when we rightly see the greatness of God and the holiness of God and are full of the gratitude and the humility for what God has done for us and of how he sees us, only then will we find ourselves being able to root for the wayward brother to return home and rejoice when he or she does. And let me say this too, the joy that's described here It's a joy that's only going to be experienced by those who are passionately in pursuit of the wayward brother and sister. That may look like reaching out to this person, seeking to call this person. It may look like risking rejection when you do. And when all else fails, it looks like them continuing to be on your heart and mind and in your prayers as you're burdened for them if there's no other way in which you can reach them. See, if we're indifferent to a wayward brother or sister, we may actually find ourselves begrudging their return, like the older brother. But the joy, joy is the experience of those who are yearning for that person's restoration long before it ever comes. Not of those who are worried about and concerned with the injustice of it all. What I'm saying is this, joy over one person's repentance is tasted only by those who carried a burden in their heart for that person while they were still astray. Which, by the way, tells you something about the heart of God for those who've gone astray. He yearns for them to return. And he'll rejoice when they do. There's an opportunity for us here that it would be a swing and a complete whiff if I didn't draw out very clearly. This discourse that Jesus is teaching in Matthew 18, just by way of reminder here, is meant to address the anti-kingdom dynamics that, uh, that exist and creep into every group of believers, every church, our own is not an exception. And hear this, because the fail on our part isn't so much when we experience these types of things in isolation, pride, and judgmentalism, and uh, you know, sinning against, even sinning against one another. The fail on our part is when we are confronted with the word of God and the spirit of God in these matters and we do nothing about it. That's where we start to look more like the kingdom of this world than the kingdom of heaven. Next week, Jesus is gonna walk his disciples very practically through what we are to do when we hurt one another. It's commonly the passage that's referred to as uh, the church discipline passage, but understand that the heart of the word discipline is disciple. This is just what discipleship looks like when we've hurt one another. How should that look? And Jesus is also going to talk about one of the hallmarks of the kingdom on this side of eternity, which has to be characteristic of every church and has to be characteristic of his kingdom, and that is forgiveness. Listen, we've been through a lot over this past year as a church and in this culture and country that we live. We've been through a pandemic. We're still going through a pandemic. We've been through a volatile election cycle. We've been through racial strains and tensions, and people have strong opinions about this stuff, and that is fine. But what's not fine is despising one another. What's not fine is looking down on one another. What's not fine is withholding forgiveness from one another. So this week, what I'm gonna ask you as your pastor 
to do is to deal with those things radically as he calls us to, that he's been exposing through this journey so far in Matthew 18. Maybe there are places where he's exposed, you need to humble yourself because pride has evidenced itself. And then deal with that sin radically. Don't make excuses. Be wary of the excuses that will come to mind, but I'm justified in this anger. I'm justified in this judgment that I have toward this person. I'm justified in withholding forgiveness toward this person. Repent of these things. Don't make excuses. Understand that you have a God in heaven who has said to you, you are more valuable than you could possibly understand. But that is also true for this one whom you are despising. And when you are tempted to feel justified in your anger or in your reluctance to work towards reconciliation, think about the rejection that God has faced and yet the lengths that he went to in order to bring us back to himself. Don't think that God doesn't know what it feels like to be rejected. Don't think he doesn't know what it's like to have pain in relationship. I know you know that, but really steep in that reality this week. Listen, the whole reason that this sheep wandered to begin with is because it had rejected its shepherd. When somebody sins against you, do you understand that they're not only sinning against you, they're also sinning against your God, our God. When you are rejected, God is also being rejected. He understands your pain in relationship. And yet the great equalizer is that we all stand before God equally indebted because of the great love and grace that he poured out for us on the cross. So as we celebrate communion in a moment, remember this today. That person that you may be tempted to feel is undeserving of your love, undeserving of your forgiveness, undeserving of your pursuit. Maybe that's true if you're Jesus, but you're not. Neither am I. Instead, you and I are recipients of cosmic grace, which has granted us forgiveness from sin and sonship and eternal life. And no amount of pain that another has caused you could ever equal these undeserved gifts that were secured for us by the shepherd whom we've all wandered away from. Amen. Pray with me, please. Oh, Father in heaven, holy be your name. We are so other than you and yet you love and pursue us. Let that humble our hearts as it needs to for your glory and for our community to be a reflection of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.